Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers, so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord, so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do glory in the teaching of this book, and we pray now that it would not only be something that our hearts and our minds relish to contemplate, but that it would become a reality, a practical reality of our living. Lord, how we desperately need our priorities to be reordered in light of your word. And so by your spirit, reorder those priorities and bring a renewal born of the Holy Spirit that renovates this congregation. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to our final study in Colossians. And we're looking at Paul's list of friends, his fellow workers. And it's a wonderful example of the partnership that we have in the gospel. A partnership that flies in the face of one of the great myths of American history, the myth of rugged individualism. It's part of the way that we think of ourselves, of our culture, personal freedom, wide open spaces, solitary trial faced alone, conquered alone, and celebrated alone. Rolf Waldo Emerson was the original champion of this individualism. He spent considerable time alone in Walden, Massachusetts, and in a famous Phi Beta Kappa address in 1837, he shared what he'd learned about life. I learned that no man in God's wide earth is either willing or able to help any other man. Help comes from our bosom alone. Emerson later wrote a famous essay called Self-Reliance, celebrating this theme. He carried it to its logical extreme, rejecting any effort to help or be helped by other people. He said, 
Do not tell me, as a good man did today, of my obligation to put all poor men in a good situation. Are they my poor? I tell thee, thou foolish philanthropist, that I grudge the dollar or the dime, even the cent I give to such men as do not belong to me, and to whom I do not belong. Well, that is self-reliance. And there is nothing further from biblical Christianity than this. And so we, we come to this list of greetings that Paul gives at the end of this letter. We see a man who knew how dependent he was on other people. Gladly dependent. Glad to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowing full well that his co-laborers in the gospel are indispensable to the gospel progress in his own life and to the ends of the earth. You see, not one of us can do it alone. Rugged individualism is impossible in the kingdom of God. Moses couldn't do it alone. And so God gave him 70 elders to help him lead Israel. Jesus chose 12 apostles as part of his strategic way of advancing the gospel. And together they built the church. Even the great apostle Paul couldn't plant churches alone, but frequently speaks of his co-laborers, both men and women. And how God used them, this dear brother or this dear sister, a co-laborer in the gospel, and how they worked together. And so the bottom line lesson here is that none of us can do it alone. Away with self-salvation. Because right? Satan is trying to sell it to us all the time. Right? You can save yourself by your own efforts, by being a good person, by philosophy or mysticism or legalism or any of these things. You can save yourself. Friends, away with that. You can't do it. And God has testified to this by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to shed His blood on the cross as a testimony to the fact that none of us could save ourselves. Galatians 2, verse 21 says, In effect, if salvation could be worked out by obedience, then Christ died for nothing. Well, Christ didn't die for nothing because it can't be worked out that way. And so I say to you, if you've never come to faith in Christ... And you care about the salvation of your soul. You have a choice. You can either try to save yourself through your own individual effort and you will fail. Or you can turn to Christ and see him shedding his blood on the cross for sinners like you and me. And you can turn away from self and turn to Jesus and rely completely on him. And he will save you. And so I urge you to do that. That is the gospel. But it doesn't end there. It's not like now that I've been saved, I can be sanctified, made more holy, all on my own. I can finish my race alone. But no way, right? Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me. And I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. And so having begun dependent on Christ, we will proceed dependent on Christ to the very end. But this morning, I also want us to see that we need one another. We can't do it alone. We are not independent of one another. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 that he uses the analogy of the, the human body, and we are the body of Christ, and we're all together in Christ, and he's the head. And Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. Right? Every part of the body is indispensable. We need each other. You have to convince yourself of that truth. Well, here's the main point that I want us to see this morning. You can't live the Christian life alone. 
So, partner together with faithful friends and Christ-like co-workers for the kingdom of God. Notice that Paul willingly shares his ministry, and he acknowledges those who work with him. Fellow servants, in verse 7. Fellow prisoners, in verse 10. Fellow workers, verse 11. Paul is no lone ranger. Yes, he's gifted by God in an extraordinary way, supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit. But he sees his ministry to be a corporate ministry. He's not off on his own, right? He's willing to share his ministry, depend on others, willing to acknowledge that others play integral roles in the work that he does. And so Paul goes person by person. And as you read this, you ought to think, if Paul knew me, what would he write about me in a few short lines? How would he give up a title summing up my life? More importantly, what would Jesus say? What would be the marker that he would use to describe me? That's what we ought to think about this morning. So let's look at his co-workers one at a time. We'll begin with Paul's couriers in verses 7 through 9. And first we have the faithful servant, Tychicus. Look at verses 7 through 8. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. There's a lot of nuts and bolts in this greeting. right? I'm sending him as a messenger. He's going to tell you what's going on with us. But notice that Paul has three things to say about him. Number one, verse seven, he calls him our dearly loved brother. I'll tell you, if I could have the Apostle Paul say that about me, I would be a happy man. Wouldn't you? If I could labor with Paul and have him say, this man is a dearly loved brother, or this woman is a dearly loved sister. Right? That would be the essence of commendation. He was one of the family. He was beloved. He had earned that designation. And how much fulfillment there must have been in knowing that he was loved by one of the most beloved human beings of all time, the beloved Apostle Paul himself. Second, he is a faithful minister. The word there is diakonos, or, or servant, right? He's a faithful servant. He never attained prominence. He just served. He was an invaluable liaison between Paul and the churches, and he was faithful. Faithful to what had been entrusted to him. He stuck with it. He perseveres. He brings forth the harvest. He's one of those 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 4 kind of stewards that was found faithful. He just did it, whatever it was. He served faithfully. And you know something? There's no other way to get the work done. And Paul knew it. Right? You've got to have people who have a servant's heart. And further, he was not only a faithful servant of Paul, but he was a fellow servant in the Lord. And the first phrase has to do with Paul, right? He's a faithful servant of mine. And then also, he's a fellow servant in the Lord. There's two words, right? First one is diakonos, which means just servant. The second is sundulos, which means a bond slave. He's not a bond slave to Paul. He's a bond slave to Jesus. And therefore, he's a faithful servant to Paul. The words are important. And so here we meet one of Paul's friends, an indispensable man. I'm glad for Tychicus, aren't you? I'm glad he was loyal. I'm glad he was faithful. Clearly, 
Tychicus is someone Paul trusts and honors and loves, a co-worker he can depend on, and he wants to commend them, commend him to the Colossians. Now notice his role in this letter. We first meet Tychicus in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where he's part of Paul's missions team. And then we come across him again here in Colossians 4, verse 7, Ephesians 6, verse 21, Titus 3, verse 12, and 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. And we discover Tychicus is the person most frequently sent by Paul to the churches he planted as a carrier of his letter to them and to let the Christians there know how things are going with Paul. This is what Paul says in verse 8, right? I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus, we might say, is the apostolic mailman, right? That's his ministry. That's his work. It's a simple ministry. It's not dramatic. He's not somewhere on a platform just wowing folks with his oratory. No, instead, he, he travels for Paul around all the cities he's visited to the congregations associated with him, simply delivering the apostles' letters. And look, not all ministry must be public in order to be valid or significant. Some of it's in the background. Some of it has a supporting role. That was Tychicus. And yet, it's his ministry that made Paul's ministry possible and effective. Because Tychicus was faithful in his task, Paul's letters reached their destinations. So if you have a supporting ministry, a quiet backroom work, if your ministry is unglamorous, basic, overlooked even, remember Tychicus. Be encouraged. You know, some of you have encouraged me and said, I've really enjoyed our study in Colossians. And to that I say, Tychicus, thank you. And he made it possible. We couldn't have studied Colossians together on these Sunday mornings without him. Right? What a vital work he did. It's not the praise of men that defines the value of a ministry. It's being a beloved brother or sister, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. That's what really counts. Faithfulness to the task entrusted to us. Well, then secondly, we have the forgiven sinner, Onesimus. Look at verse 9. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Now, Tychicus is carrying not one, but three letters. Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. They're written around the same time, and they're sent together. Now, Philemon was one of the pillars of the Colossian church. He loved the Lord. His family was very involved. In fact, it says in verse 2 of Philemon that the church met in Philemon's home. And Philemon came to faith through Paul. Paul says in verse 19 of Philemon, you owe me even your very self. And, and he's a very wealthy man, right? That's why the church can meet in his home. And he owns some slaves at the time. One of the slaves was a man named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus didn't like being a slave, and so he ran away. And you know what a slave was to do when he ran away? If he was caught, right, he was to give his life. Runaway slaves were executed. But Onesimus ran away, and he ran all the way to Rome. And he ran right into the Apostle Paul himself. And you know something? Just as Paul led Philemon to Christ, Paul leads Onesimus to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, this runaway slave. And now he writes a letter to Philemon and he sends Onesimus back. And the letter says, Philemon, I know he ran away, but don't kill him. 
Don't have him killed. He may have gone away a slave, but he's coming back a brother. And he's willing to serve you as a slave and a brother in Christ. So open your arms of love. Take him back, will you? And so here's Tychicus with uh, the letter to Philemon in his pocket. And Onesimus, the slave, walking beside him. And Paul writes this letter to foster in Philemon's heart love for this returning slave who's now his brother in Christ. He calls him a brother. He calls him dearly loved. He calls him faithful. And in the letter to Philemon, he says, Onesimus is, and I love this, Onesimus is my very own heart. I love this man. Once slave, now my brother. You know, I think one reason why Paul loved this man was because he was just another illustration of the principle that moved Paul. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I think just having Onesimus around was another great testimony to what God's transforming power can do in a life. So there is Onesimus, the forgiven sinner. And that's what all of us are. Aren't we all runaway slaves who ran away from our true master, God himself? We didn't want to serve him. We wanted to be on our own, like the prodigal son, doing our own thing. But then someone graciously tells us the gospel, and we're sent back to the true master of our souls. And he will welcome us back, richly, as he did Onesimus. And so those are Paul's couriers, Tychicus and Onesimus, dearly loved brothers, faithful servants. You need people around you like these men. And then Paul goes on, and he sends greetings from six of his co-workers. The first three are Jewish, and the next three are Gentiles, non-Jews. So let's look at the three Jewish co-workers. Notice his words about Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice, three Jewish Christians who were serving with Paul. He says in verse 11, These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Everywhere I've gone, I've upset the Jews. They've rejected the gospel I'm preaching, but these Jews, these Jewish Christians, they encouraged me. They worked alongside me, and I'm thankful to God for them. Well, let's look at them briefly. First, we have the fellow sufferer, Aristarchus. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings. You know what you need if you're suffering for Christ's sake. You need some people who are just around to feel your burdens with you. You need some burden bearers. Aristarchus was one of those people. He was a Macedonian, born in Thessalonica, the inseparable companion of Paul, partner of almost all his dangers. He traveled together with the apostle through Macedonia, Greece, and Asia, and accompanied him even to Rome. You remember Paul ministered at Ephesus for three years, and during those three years, Aristarchus was with him. And you remember when in Acts 19 that the riot broke out. Aristarchus and Gaius were seized by the mob, and Aristarchus found out what it was to be a prisoner. The mob recognized him as one of Paul's travel companions, and they seized him and imprisoned him. Later on, Paul decides to go to Jerusalem. Who goes with him? Aristarchus. So Paul gets on the boat. He's captured as a prisoner in Jerusalem. Then he's moved to Caesarea on the coast, where he stays, again, as a prisoner. And finally, he gets on a boat to be tried in Rome, and Aristarchus was with him. And so Paul calls him, my fellow prisoner. The guy hasn't committed a crime. (laughs) 
He just hangs around with falsely accused apostles. And so he spends his time in jail. He chose to be beside Paul. He chose to make Paul's lifestyle his lifestyle because he cared, because he loved Paul, because he knew that Paul needed him. There are people who may not be prominent in the church, but maybe they're the most beloved of all because they're the burden bearers. They're the fellow sufferers. And we don't know what else Aristarchus did. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us he delivered anything or did anything. But you know something? We know that whatever he did, he gave up his freedom to do it, to be a prisoner with Paul. And I'll tell you something. The Lord's work would never be done if it weren't for people like this who are willing to give up their liberty to be a prisoner, to accomplish what God wants accomplished. He's a a fellow sufferer par excellence, a man for all seasons, a bad weather friend. Thank God for men who stick with you when it's hard, because all of them won't, as we'll see in a minute, when it gets rough. But Aristarchus stuck by Paul's side. What a friend. What a co-worker for the kingdom of God. But then we have this future surprise, and that's Mark. Now, by this time, Mark has already turned back to fruitful service in the Lord. Look at verse 10. Right? They greet you, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, Mark has a long and fascinating history. Mark, John Mark, cousin of Barnabas, accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He gets halfway through, and he doesn't want to do it anymore. And it's not blameless, right? It's not like he had urgent business. He had to go away. It was sin. He turned away. He was not faithful. And he turned away from his work. So much so that when it was time for Paul and Barnabas to go back and visit some of the churches that they planted, and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, give him a second chance. But Paul said, there's no way. Acts 15, verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. Right? And we see both points of their view, right? For Paul, this was important work, and Mark had already proven unsteady, unfaithful. You don't want somebody like that in your foxhole, so I'm not taking him. Well, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he's the kind that would put an arm around somebody who is down and out, like he did for Paul. Saul of Tarsus, who'd recently been converted. Nobody wanted to get within a mile of him. Persecutor of the church. It was Barnabas that brought Paul to the church in Jerusalem and said, you know what? He's doing well. He's preaching the gospel faithfully in Damascus. Paul should have known Barnabas better than that. Barnabas was urging him, let's give John Mark another try. But they had such a sharp disagreement, it says, that they parted company and went separate ways. And you know what? God ended up using it. Paul and Silas go through Philippi and bring the gospel there, and Barnabas and John Mark go on their way. But by this time, John Mark has been clearly reclaimed for the gospel, and he's useful in the ministry of Christ. Here's Mark again, and now he's being commended to the Colossians by Paul. And at the very end of Paul's life, Paul's in prison again. He's writing to Timothy. And one of the things he wants as he's on the home stretch, as he wants to finish well, the person he wants by his side is Mark. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Now, he had all sorts of doubts about him before, but as his life and his ministry winds down, 
As he finishes his race, Mark is the one he wants beside him on the home stretch. Look, the gospel is no guarantee that division and interpersonal conflict will not happen. But the gospel is the power of God to mend the rifts between us when they do appear. So that's Mark. And he's been useful to all of us. If you've ever read the gospel according to Mark, it's from his perspective that we get an insight into the life of Jesus that God wanted us to have throughout the ages. And God used this man, this reclaimed failure in ministry, to write that work. And then we have the fearless stalwart, someone courageous, Jesus, who is called justice, sends greetings. Another Jew who is willing to stand firm against his countrymen for the gospel. These are the only Jews, Paul says, who are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. You can imagine why, because everywhere that Paul went, the first place he goes is to the synagogue, and he preaches the gospel there until, in effect, they throw him out. And so any Jews who turn to Christ and believe in him were a great encouragement to Paul. So he was a man who was a source of comfort, a source of soothing, because he had a similar faith and a strong commitment. He was willing to pay a price, right? He was willing to walk away from the opinions of his own people and take a stand with Christ, no matter what it costs. Right? That's the kind of man that you want laboring beside you for the gospel. Well, Paul continues now, and he gives three non-Jewish co-workers, three Gentiles, and next we see the fierce struggler, Epaphras. Look at verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Epaphras was first introduced back in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul uses the same language for Epaphras that he used for Tychicus. Right? He's a faithful servant of Christ. On the tombs of the prophets were the words, servant of the Lord. Right? What better title could, you, could one have than to be called a servant of the Lord? And it was from Epaphras that the Colossians came to know Jesus. Right? He was their first pastor, a church planner, there in Colossae. And so Paul describes Epaphras' faithfulness as a gospel servant. And here he says, first of all, that he's a man of prayer. This is one of the best brief descriptions of a prayer warrior that you will find in the Bible. Epaphras, who's been ministering to this congregation, even though he's presently ministering to Paul in imprisonment. He's not forgotten the church. In fact, he wrestles with the Lord daily, Paul tells us. Now, don't overlook the always there. There's a diligence, a consistency. He never neglected to pray to God for the flock entrusted to him. Now, this is challenging, right? When last did you wrestle? When last did you struggle in your prayers for someone else? There's a deep burden, an appropriate and proper concern that's weighing on him. So he struggles. There's a vigorous personal investment wrestling with God for the welfare of the people of God. And what does he pray for? He prays that this people would be perfect in Christ, complete in Christ, that they'd be mature, fully assured and fulfilled in the will of God. John Calvin says this is a good pastor's prayer. Why in his 
little prayer, he sums up the whole book of Colossians, right? That, that believers would be complete in Christ and fully assured of that and fulfilled in the will of God. Epaphras is not interested in mere decisions for Christ. That's not his definition of success in the ministry. It's not a room packed with people. Yes, he wants to see numerical increase, but his goal is Christian maturity. He wants to see them professing faith and growing up into him who is the head. He wants maturity and full assurance. And he knows that's utterly beyond him. Right? He can't manufacture it. He can't create it or cause it by the force of his rhetoric. And so he's cast back upon God. And he wrestles with God for his people in prayer. Right? That's the mark of a true and faithful shepherd. It's not, first of all, if he can turn on a smile and make small talk with you in your living room or at the hospital bedside. It's not whether he has gifts as a counselor or a preacher. Those are skills that should not be neglected, but they are not the mark of a true shepherd. The mark of a true shepherd is whether he wrestles in prayer for the people of God. And so pastors and elders and men, those of you aspiring to serve in these offices in gospel ministry, isn't this all too often the forgotten priority in our preparations? and in our training for the work of the Lord. You can preach your heart out every Lord's Day, but if you don't pray down God's grace, what hope of success do you have for all of your pulpit labors? You can shepherd and counsel and take time to visit the flock, but what hope can you cherish of helping anyone in spiritual things if you will not struggle on their behalf in prayer? And so prayer is the work of the ministry. That does mean for me, certainly, and perhaps for us as a church, there ought to be some adjustment of our expectations of what pastors do with their time. Right? If we think that a pastor should be frantically busy, then our understanding of the work of the ministry is not biblical, because the burden of our work is the burden of prayer. We would devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So please, will you pray and insist and encourage me to spend significant time in my day, in my work week, pleading with God for the good of this flock. Hold me accountable. Notice also that Epaphras is commended for his hard work. Verse 13. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Herapolis. He's not a lazy pastor. He's a hard worker. He works hard, and not just for the Colossians, his own local congregation, right? He, he works hard for all of God's people in the churches in that region. In Laodicea and in Herapolis. It's one thing to work hard for gospel growth in your own congregation, in your own church. It's another thing to labor hard for gospel growth in the other churches around you. He's not a competitor with the other churches in his region, right? He's a co-worker for the kingdom of God. He works hard to help foster gospel churches any way he can. He works hard to that end. So Lord, make us like Epaphras. Make us like Jesus, whoever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of God, who never stops praying for you and for me. And then we have the foreign specialist, Luke. Verse 14, Luke, the dearly loved physician, sends you greetings. Luke was not a Jew. We know that because of the demarcation in verse 11. And everyone after is not a Jew. Right? So he was a Gentile, a doctor. And therefore, a specialist, the first of many missionary doctors who went and plied their trade for the glory of God on the mission field. And that was Luke. And from him, of course, we get the gospel, according to Luke, and the book of Acts. He was a man 
who had a specialized talent. He was a physician. But it's interesting to note that on Paul's first missionary journey, he was sick all the time. And then when he goes on his second journey, he took Luke. He felt the need of a personal doctor, and so he took him along. And God's work needs specialists, folks. Not everybody needs to go to seminary. Not everybody should go to seminary. Some should go to medical school. Right? You can use your specialized skills on the mission field. And I'll bet Paul and Luke had some great interactions. Right? I'll bet they were just bosom buddies. Because when Paul was dying, 2 Timothy, he says, only Luke is with me. They were close. He knew every scar on Paul's body. Paul calls him the dearly loved physician. I love that. What do you have a relationship with your doctor, right? And so Luke is a great illustration of a man who had a specialty to offer. He gave his specialty to God, and God took his specialty and gave him back a privilege he never dreamed would even happen. You realize that Luke wrote 52 chapters of the New Testament. I'd say that that's significant. God took him where he was and used him where he never dreamed he could be. He's living proof of Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. But then we have the heartbreaker, the future scandal, Demas. He's mentioned as being with Luke, Paul's good friend and physician. Demas is mentioned again with Luke in the book of Philemon as my co-workers. Demas and Luke are mentioned in both of those passages as ongoing, faithful servants of the Lord Jesus. But I'm sad to tell you that the last word on Demas is a very sad one. Because in the last book Paul wrote, he tells us that Demas fell away from the faith. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Can you not feel the pain in those words? 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. What could have been in Thessalonica worth his eternal soul? What was so attractive about Thessalonica that he turned his back on Paul? He abandoned him, right? Demas has deserted me. No hint of it here, though. And you know something? There, there are some of his kind in everybody's ministry. Jesus had his Judas. And Paul had his Demas. And all of us, if we haven't yet, we'll have the same kind. They're all there somewhere, and they show up. And it's sad. And like Paul's heart, they'll break, they'll break our hearts. And we'll never forget, right? The scars will be deep. The cousins will always be there. What happened? They were running well. Many a pastor, many a disciple maker, many a parent has been heartbroken by the defection of someone from an apparent walk with Christ to then turn their back on Jesus and stop walking with him any longer. And so the very mention of Demas' name reminds us that we must make every effort to confirm our calling and our election. Persevere, brothers and sisters. He who endures to the end will be saved. And so those are Paul's co-workers. And Paul knew he couldn't do it alone. He needed faithful friends and Christ-led co-workers around him. What a team he put around himself. 
But then as much as Paul needed them, they also needed Paul. They needed his gifts, his ministry, his labor, his instruction, his encouragement. And so do we. Right? We, meet, we need this mighty co-worker for the kingdom of God still today. And so finally, consider Paul's correspondence in verses 15 through 18. We're going to get our own applications right from Paul's instructions here. First, greet the churches. Verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. I say hi to everybody for me. I love that. Notice that Paul views each local assembly of Christ as an independent church. Right? Each was a church in its own right. Our statement of faith says, We hold that the local church has the absolute right of self-government, free from the interference of any hierarchy of individuals or organizations, and that the one and only superintendent is Christ through the Holy Spirit. Right? And that was true of these churches. There were churches on their own, in their own right. And yet, our statement of faith goes on to say, it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other in contending for the faith and for the furtherance of the gospel. And we're committed to partnering with other faithful gospel-reaching churches to advance the glories of Christ. And I'm thankful we're part of a fellowship of churches that allows us to do this regularly. That's why we take time to pray for fire churches it's a way for us to greet one another, right? To partner together in prayer. When we attend one of those conferences, we deepen our fellowship together. We're independent, but we're interdependent, do you see? Greet the churches, Paul reminds us. Crucify the spirit of competition and foster a spirit of cooperation. Second, read my letters. Verse 16. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So read each other's letters. All right, it's not reading each other's mail. That would be wrong. But it's not wrong for you to read the letter to Philemon. God meant for you to read it. All right, we ought to read all of Paul's letters. They're here for us to read. So, right, so read the scriptures. Now let's talk about that letter from Laodicea. There are two possible explanations to understand this. First, it's, it's possible that not everything that Paul wrote was intended by God to be in the Bible. For example, most scholars agree that Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth, but only two are preserved in Scripture. And so it's possible that only those books that God preserved by his providence were intended by God as Scripture. And so this letter, in this view from Laodicea, is simply a lost letter. And if we were to find it, we would not add it to our Bibles because God has preserved everything we need for life and godliness. We have a complete Bible. We lack nothing. Nothing's missing. Another view is that some scholars believe that the epistle from Laodicea is not really lost, but is really the book of Ephesians. And there are some good reasons for this. First, Paul does not call it the letter of the Laodiceans, but the letter that is coming from Laodicea. Second, it is known that Paul wrote Ephesians at the same time that he wrote Colossians and sent it with Tychicus to another church in the same general area. And there's tremendous similarity between Ephesians and Colossians, more than any other pair of Paul's letters. Third, there's evidence that Ephesians did not originally bear that title. It was a kind of cyclical letter sent to the churches of Asia 
minor. In fact, some of the earliest manuscripts do not have the phrase in Ephesus, in Ephesians 1 verse 1. And it would be strange that Paul, right, he spent three years ministering to the Ephesians, that he would send no personal greetings to them if the book were intended for them alone. Right? By contrast, Paul had never visited Rome. That's the longest section of greetings in all of his letters. Fourth, no epistle of the Laodiceans is cited by any early church father, though they make over 36,000 New Testament citations, including every book and almost every verse of the New Testament. A fraudulent epistle of the Laodiceans appeared in the 4th century, but scholars don't believe it is one, the one referred to by Paul here. Indeed, it's really just a large collection of quotations from Ephesians and Colossians. And the Church Council of Nicaea in 787 AD called it a forged epistle. So it's possible that this is referring to the letter that we now know as Ephesians. Whatever the case, we don't know for sure the nature of this letter. And speculation doesn't really help us. But we do know that Paul recognized there was spiritual value in that letter for the believers in Colossae. And therefore he gave exhortation for them to get it and read it. And he wanted the truth of this letter to be read elsewhere as well. Right? And simply in reading through this letter over these past few months, we've obeyed this scripture. And then, brothers and sisters, let's continue to read Paul's letters until we're with him in glory. Third application. It's complete your ministry. Verse 17, And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. There's something going on with Archippus and he needs a word of exhortation to finish the work, to fulfill his ministry. Sometimes ministry is hard. There can be a personal cost involved to be paid. And often we need a work, a word like verse 17. Someone to come to us and say, press on, finish the race, pay attention. Fulfill your ministry. Many of you are actually very good at doing that. You have a real gift of encouragement, and I've been on the receiving end of it, often. And over and over again, not only have you said kind things, that you've encouraged me to press on. If that's a gift the Lord has given you, will you cultivate it? If it's not a gift, do it anyway, right? Encourage one another all the more. Because we need people like Paul saying to us, as he does to Archippus, fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. And because we all have ministry, don't we, right? Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verse 12, the pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's the ministry of every member, to be a body builder. That's the task Christ has entrusted to you. See to it that you complete your ministry. It's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? You want to say with Paul at the end of your life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have completed the work that God gave me to do. Fourth, remember my chains. Verse 18. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Consider for a minute the reality that he is literally in chains. He's under house arrest. He's not in a position to write. You know, maybe his hand is up here. How hard would it have been to, for his chained up writing hand to write on a piece of papyrus? Would have been extremely difficult for him to do. And so he's using, throughout this letter, what we call a scribe, a secretary, to write the majority of this letter. One imagines Paul standing there. Maybe he can walk around a little bit. I don't know. You can hear the noise of his chains as he, he's walking back and forth. 
thinking about what he wants to say and, and dictating it to his letter writer. But now he's saying, I write this greeting with my own hand. We know there were many false teachers writing letters pretending to be Paul. For what motive? One can only imagine. But in order to secure the truthfulness of this letter, right, he signs it with his own hand. This is his handwriting. He wants them to know this is genuine. This is my letter. And then he adds, remember my chains. I'm awaiting trial. The Jews in Jerusalem have brought a case against me. And that trial never took place, right? The Jews never appeared. Paul appealed to Caesar, as it, was, as it was right to do as a Roman citizen. And eventually he's set free, only to be rearrested two, possibly three years later, brought back to Rome, and eventually beheaded, roughly around the same time as the Apostle Peter. And so we ought to feel the weight of his words here. Remember my chains. Paul's not asking for pity. It's not the Paul we know and love. He's been in chains before, and he will be in chains again. He wants them to remember why he was in prison, preaching the message that we are complete in Christ and in Christ alone. And he wanted them to remember who he was imprisoned for, the Master, the Lord and Savior. He was not at last the prisoner of Caesar. He was not the prisoner of Rome. He was the prisoner of Christ. And he wants them to remember the message and the Master who had put him in that prison because he wanted them to cling to the truth of that message and always be loyal to that master who had given them that message. And then finally, grace be with you. It's a benediction. When you walk into that doctor's office and there's a sense of sobriety and you know this is not going to be good and he talks about the diagnosis and about possible ways forward and your mind is reeling and you can't hear a word that he's saying because you're in total shock. Grace be with you. When you're dealing with your teenage children, when they go through those phases and it drives you around the bend, grace be with you. When you're dealing with elderly parents and all of the difficulties that that entails, grace be with you. When you have a special needs child and life is hard, life is difficult, grace be with you. Paul began his letter by saying grace to you. Right? He had in mind that this inspired letter is itself a channel of God's grace to his readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writing to all who read it. And so he says, grace be to you. But as the end of the letter approaches, Paul realizes the reading is almost finished. And the question arises, what becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of the inspired letter? And he answers it with a blessing. Grace be with you. With you as you put the letter away and leave the church. With you as you go home to deal with a sick child or an unaffectionate spouse. With you as you go to work and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. With you as you muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. Grace is ready to flow to us every time we take up the inspired scriptures to read them. And we learn that grace will abide with us when we lay our Bibles down and go about our daily living. Grace from beginning to end. That's the Christian life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. T'is grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home.
grace be with you. You can't do it alone, but God and his grace are with you. Whatever your trial, whatever your need, whatever your difficulty, whatever your circumstance, the grace of God is there to protect you, to look out for you, to remind you that you are kept in the arms of Jesus, and he will never let you go. In the worst possible circumstance, God's grace abounds. And so may his grace be with you today and every day until the last day. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we praise you for the amazing grace and the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise you that it transforms lives, not only for saving us, but for giving us a place of service in your kingdom. Lord God, we pray for our pastors and deacons, for our Sunday school teachers, for all our members. Lord, give us faithfulness to wrestle in prayer, to struggle mightily, to work hard for the people of God entrusted to us. We pray, O oh Lord, for our fellowship. Deliver us from the love of the world. Lest after having said so much that's true and good, we, found, we are found at the last, in fact, to be frauds. Help us to form deep friendships. And know that we run this race together and not alone. And Lord, as we complete our study of this letter from your servant Paul, we ask that the grace that has flowed to us in reading it would abide with us as we move on to other scriptures. Let us exalt Christ as supreme and give him first place in our lives and in our church. Let us remember that we have died and have been raised with him and to seek first his kingdom, even as we labor together as co-workers for the kingdom of God. Would you do it all for your glory? For we ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.